You're listening to the CapEx Big Question podcast, where we're joined by other investors, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs discussing global game-changing trends and burning topics that keep investors up at night, one question at a time. Hello, boss. Hello, Max. How are you? I think you're the boss. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> I don't think so. I feel like the dog's body around here. It's because you made the mistake of becoming an entrepreneur. Yeah, I know. Really stupid mistake. If I ever come up with an idea like this again, just tell me no. I'll, just, just, I'll hand you a bottle of rum and tell you to uh, think about it in the morning after you finished it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was the rum that got me into trouble in the first place. Most likely. It tends to do that. But you look like you guys are doing an excellent job. From Thank you. Yes. From, yeah, it's um, going really well, actually. Things are slotted into place. We're getting the right staff into place. and Everything's just about to really move forward. So it's getting really exciting. I hope you make us all a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm working. I'm working for you, mate. Working for you. Well, one of the things that I actually had a discussion with with our mutual friend Brent Johnson the other day, and we were discussing some of these things. You know, we've got you know S and P all time highs, bonds. <laughs> to say bonds are at all time highs is is somewhat humorous because it's really actually <laughs> sort of five thousand year highs. Um, <laughs> And on the back of that, you've got real estate, which at all-time highs, or even if we're not at nominal highs on a ratio basis, sort of income to asset values, is at all-time highs. And even when you look at the S&P and things like that, I think earnings growth is faltering. So, you know, those PE ratios, you know, there's two, there's, there's price and earnings, and earnings is, are, not, are not looking that robust. So in that sort of environment, what is it that you know? What is it that you think you you should be looking for for protection firstly, and then for profit? The problem is, is we don't know how it's going to play out because we don't know of what order of events things come in. You know, is it the equity market that cracks, or is it the bond market that cracks? Uh, in which order and how that manifests up is we don't know. What I do know is that what we're talking about is the end of the financialization of the economy, and that's a good thing. But what does that really mean for people? It means you have to go and build businesses again. You need to go and do business. And if you do business, then you're outside of the financial economy and you have a much better chance of succeeding. So with equity valuations at all-time highs, you can't invest in companies very easily. But you can build companies because sweat equity is all you have to put down and some capital and capital cost of capital is relatively low. So to do that, the returns on capital from building a business are much, much higher than from investing in businesses that are already listed. So that's kind of, you know, if I think, you know, what's the sensible answer? That's the sensible answer. You know, if you want to remain financial, then, you know, it's difficult. It's difficult and, you know, cash becomes impossible to hold because of negative interest rates. But, you know, at negative 1%, I'd probably still rather own cash than other things. You know, I'm less of a bear on the bond market, but that's only, you know, short term because over a more extended period of time, the bond market's a terrible, terrible trouble. So it becomes complex. And obviously, you know, gold, Bitcoin, those kind of things are going to do well in this environment over time. You know, there'll be a lot of ups and downs on the way, but that's kind of how I think of it. I think if there's any time to build a business, now is it. It's a very entrepreneurial environment. Also, when within that framework, you've got what I tend to look at are you know the other side of those particular trades, if you will. So you talk about the financialization of, which is what we've had right for the last 20, 30 years, sort of financialization of everything. Yeah. And now that 
that envelope has become pushed too far early. The flip side of that is there is in certain markets asymmetry, which you know, quite frankly, I've never I've never experienced or seen before because the cost of entry into those particular deals or trades are you know, asymmetrically low. And a Brexit was an interesting environment because at its at its core, it should not have been that big a deal. You know, Britain has its own currency. It has its own legal system, its own tax system. There was, you know, there should not have been the kind of reaction to Brexit that we saw. And I think that just sort of points towards the fragility in markets that we have today. Also, it's because the market is having to struggle with shifting probabilities of outcomes they don't understand. So the the um, populism movement that's spreading around the world is something markets don't know how to price. We don't know what it means. What does it mean if Donald Trump becomes president? What does it mean with England leaving Brexit? We don't, we don't know. I mean, all I do know is, for example, all the agricultural subsidies, all the patents, all of these things are all within Europe. All the health and safety regulations, um, so many parts of, of life that people in Britain understand to be stable are now unknowns. So how do you price that? I don't think the markets have a clue. Um, and I think that's the real problem is they're trying to grapple with probabilities of things of which they don't understand. And I think that's a really dangerous environment, particularly in a very illiquid marketplace. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's interesting because what the central banks, of course, are doing is they're attempting to get people to take risk, longer term risk. So that if you're a business owner and you're thinking about capex far out, and then something like Brexit takes place, or just the the potential for Trump to get into power, or Le Pen, or you know, pick your poison, it's easier for you to take a shorter term focus, right? To say, well, let me let me let's just sort of see what takes place over the next six months. And then we'll then we'll reconsider. So I'm not going to maybe go and spend a million dollars on a, a new cafe. If you're a cafe owner, you might sort of curtail that long-term, uh, almost infra- infrastructure type exactly, of capital. Exactly right. I mean, that's exactly the same thing. Business owners are having to reprice the probabilities of outcomes they don't understand either. So as you've seen it, you know, capital expenditure by businesses has collapsed over time as things have become less and less certain. You know, the 90s was a much more certain time than now is. You know, the 70s was not very certain. And we saw similar things in the 70s, except we had inflation then. And this time around, we've got disinflation or deflationary bias for the time being. So I think it's that it's the whole thing is the same. I mean, people just don't really know what to expect. The number of outcomes from here is is so vast and the probability is so difficult to calculate that it really becomes a troublesome market for everybody. So in that sort of environment, I'm looking at currencies. One of the things that you've been a big proponent of is the, is the long dollar position, which is essentially just due to that unwind of the carry trade, the US dollar carry trade. So again, coming back to that, what is essentially a short-term thinking or a, or a, or a curtailment of long-term investment you're looking for liquidity, you're looking for certainty, and that's whether it's investors, business owners, pretty much any market participants. You know, that does bode relatively well for the dollar in the short term. And I, and I spoke with Brent Johnson on this um, in terms of, you know, what is base money and then leveraged money out there. The base money where there's not credit available, there's simply not enough dollars in existence today well, that, to actually satisfy so, that demand. So I think this is a really important point. If we go back to, you asked me a question, which was, well, how do you 
bet against or how do you hedge against the definancialization of the global economy? Well, I think you've just outlined it. It's to buy dollars. Because if you think of what the financialization was, that was the essential, that was essentially the, the invention of derivatives on a mass scale and therefore the kind of shadow banking printing of dollars that happened by the expansion of credit in the private sector. And then that was matched by the government sector as well. What that did is because the US makes up 100% of world GDP in terms of its debts, and there's another $10 trillion of, of um, carry trade on top, is what you've got is a vast amount of dollars that were created by the financial system. So if you were to definancialize the system, what you're going to do is suck away trillions upon trillions of dollars or tens of trillions of dollars. And if you take those out of the system, the system is dollar starved. And so that forces the dollar higher. So actually, you know, I hadn't thought of it that way. It is the bet for the end of financialization. Because what you get is you kind of get markets which essentially go no bid. So, you know, going back to Argentina and there was an area you know, when they defaulted, which <laughs> was a fun time because you could go in and you could buy real estate, which basically went to 20%. And it went to 20% because, you know, you, your average person would go out and they'd borrow 80%. They'd have 20% equity. And now if you saw a 20% decline in equity, you have a 100% equity wipeout, right? That's right. And so in that sort of environment, and again, you come back to, you know, what is base money, there isn't, there isn't sufficient actual capital. Once the credit has gone, because it's, it's, you know, debt can vaporize. Once that's gone, then you, you basically have only what's left, which is real base money. So, you know, one of the things yes, I've been because- looking at is that correlation between a decline in asset prices, say in the commodity space, which we've had, right? And then how that affects foreign, mostly emerging market currencies, which, you know, the currencies always act as a shock absorber or a release valve for global trade. And at the center or the core of that transaction is the funding currency, which is dollars. Yeah, yes, exactly right. And, you know, it's, it's the matter of, you know, when you've got a highly leveraged economy, it's all down to collateral and base money is the ultimate form of collateral. Now, the problem is, is all the other collateral is government bonds and corporate bonds. Now, most of those government bonds are or many of them are on technically insolvent nations. They don't feel insolvent right now, but you know, if you look at most of them, whether it's Japan or even whether it's the, the UK or even potentially the US, I mean, there's a lot of leverage on those bonds. So the number of claims on each one of those bonds is extremely high. And, that, and those bonds are the basis of the collateral of the overall system. And in the end, all you've got is the actual money that's available in the system, which is base money. And so that is, yeah, that's a real problem. And that is the inherent problem of leverage. Which is something that the central banks are trying to keep increasing, right? And it's interesting because in order to sustain the banking sector, they've kept bringing interest rates down. <laughs> but in itself, NERP destroys capital accumulation, which are the building blocks of any foundation of any sound household, business, or indeed society. So in destroying or attempting to destroy capital accumu- accumulation, essentially central bankers are destroying that, that trade. There's, um, and this kind of brings me to the next point. I don't know if you're aware of it, but the Bank of England has just put out a report on the potential use of technology for something like Bitcoin, whereby the Bank of England would essentially just issue Bitcoin or, or issue a cryptocurrency. And probably not Bitcoin because Bitcoin's actually uh, a sort of deflationary currency and that there's only so many that can be issued. But a, um, a currency which would basically bypass the banks because the banks are always required to, you know, 
there's an unlimited supply of money from the central bank at a price, that price which is now you know <laughs> fallen towards the waterline. But where the banks don't actually want to issue any credit, then it just, you know, it's the old adage of pushing on a string. But by a central bank having the capability to, to issue digital currency direct to the consumer, that's it's kind of helicopter money, I guess. Of course it is. Um, we know we're going there. It just depends which format we're going to get. <laughs> you know, whether you give it to a consumer or you, you do it via financing of a giant, gigantic fiscal stimulus that builds infrastructure, whatever it is. Or a combination. I mean, that's the way they're going to try and go, and it's because they're still following the same broken economic models that, you know, you push money into the system and eventually it will stick, and it won't, because there's too much money and money's valueless. It's not real capital. Uh, exactly. Credit's not. <laughs> it's credit's not capital. No, ca- credit is the inverse of capital. Yes, it is. It's interesting because we've got the situation where credit is basically free now, but it is still not capital. It's not, it's not real capital accumulation. Again, comes back to what I was just mentioning in that because, they're, because they're destroying the capital s- accumulation. Because, because there's debt on the other side, and you know, yeah, it's debt that's the inverse of, of capital because you know, it's the inverse of wealth. So if you borrow a billion dollars, you can call yourself a billionaire because you've got a billion dollars in the bank. Actually, you're negative a billion, and there's sure. a, you know, it, it's not that subtle, but people miss that difference all the time. And the closer that you get to where the cost of that capital um, becomes fairly meaningless the more distorted the view of those of that is you know that that view between debt and equity becomes really distorted absolutely you know it's the same with anything an excess of too much of anything you know you might want a cold beer at the end of the day but if somebody gives you 700 bottles of beer you know your value of that beer is virtually nothing mm-hmm. so they can't give it away to you in fact they'd mm-hmm. have to pay you to start taking it it's exactly the same thing um you know there's just too much of it around so and your marginal return on it is too low. So on those thoughts, here's a, here's a, this is something that I've been discussing with a number of money managers internally, and it's a bit of a mind bender, but it, and it's interesting that the topic has come up in and of itself. Do you think there's a possibility of a debt jubilee? And what would that look like? And so in that sort of, if I was to paint a picture, you've got to, kind of, you know, say Bank of Japan, where they own the majority of the bond market now. So you could argue that they owe it to themselves. Where you've got external bondholders, let, let's say the pension funds, foreign investors, whoever it may be, they keep them whole and they just say, look, we're just wiping this debt out. We owe it to ourselves. So it doesn't matter. It's gone. Okay. Good in theory, if there wasn't a derivative market that uses the bonds as collateral. If you take the bond market out, what do you end up with? You end up with no collateral in the system. So if the U, a much better example would be the U.S. You know, if the U.S. were to take to buy all of their own bonds, then there's no collateral for anybody. Because every single asset really in the world is priced off of that market. Exactly. Now, you know, can they get to a debt jubilee? Yeah, they probably have to. How that works, I've, I really have no idea. <laughs> Um, all I know is the creditors get killed and the debtors make out like bandits. Okay. Now, now you and I discussed this before about European banks. Let's take a look at Deutsche Bank, you know, the, that neutron bomb sitting over there in Europe. Yeah. The yield on their debt, as opposed to, say, German bonds, is pretty wide. One could make the, or the assumption that they would not let it fail. It's a, it's a potential parastatal. Does it make any sort of sense to arbitrage the difference between German sovereign debt and something like a Deutsche Bank? 
I don't think so, because what you don't know is how Deutsche Bank goes into insolvency. So if it's too big to fail, yet it, it's going to have to wipe out somebody. And it's going to either wipe out the bondholders or the equity holders, I a bail-in. So a bail-in or a bankruptcy. Or the government has to take it over in some way, shape or form. So it's difficult to know, and they're not really allowed to according to EU rules right now. So in which case, the ECB has to prop it up in some way. What you don't know is, all I do know, sorry, is the ECB will force somebody to take a loss. And I don't know who that is going to be. So for me, I don't really like the arbitrage because I don't know the outcome for Deutsche Bank anymore because none of these things are predictable because the central banks will do anything not to let the system go. So does that mean that German bunds anyway are maybe too cheap and that maybe there should be some risk in that and maybe the CDS in Germany should, should go wider? For sure. But the problem is, is the central bank buys bunds too. So it becomes really complicated how to trade that. Maybe the answer is we shouldn't. Yeah, no, unless it's an obvious setup, you, you tend to stay away. Because um, so, we just don't know the outcomes from the central banks anymore. Because yeah. they can, they're just changing the rule book every day. Of course they are. It's because they don't really know what they're doing. So this swings me back to Bitcoin. This is something that, you know, when it was back under $400, I'd been looking at volume. Um, I like the technology, but, you know, the cryptocurrency, I was like, this is all voodoo to me. I don't really understand it. But looking at the charts, it was, you know, that together with volume, it was just sort of this textbook setup. Given where we're at today, the geopolitical environment. What are your views on that? On Bitcoin overall? Yeah. On well, the Bitcoin currency, over- not, not, the, not the blockchain. Not the blockchain. On the currency, I think it's becoming increasingly obvious that we need another payment system that works outside of the current system. And whether that's through because of capital controls that have happened in various countries, whether it's to do with the markets themselves and the difficulties with such complicated marketplace right now, Bitcoin has a place. And it's very clear that the central banks think it has a place. But I don't think there's enough people using it as a currency, apart from for a payments platform, but as an actual physical currency, for it to really be yet trading up and down with with, um, events around the world. But as an overall trend, as these events start moving towards the inevitable places that we've been talking about, then Bitcoin becomes more and more obvious over time. I just don't see it being traded fully as a currency yet. I see it as a payment system and I see it, the whole blockchain argument, as yet I don't see much of the currency argument. But that means, but I am long Bitcoin. I think it's going up a huge amount for, for a number of reasons. Yeah. I mean, I think I've had a couple of conversations with institutions um, and institutional money managers and their issue is that under their mandates they can't buy it right so on a personal side they might be buying it but they can't buy it within their funds and then the other aspect behind it is roughly what 80 percent of all bitcoin is traded in china which is largely a bit of a black box that nobody can quite figure out so you know what happens in china can materially affect the price of bitcoin because it's 80 percent of the market and so that, you know, there's that synthetic arbit- or that synthetic short rim NIMBY trade, which is Bitcoin. Again, it comes back to probability and asymmetry. You know, the, for, the, for the cost of entry, it looks relatively cheap and for what it can do, 
It looks like it's proven itself. It's proved itself in Argentina. It proved itself in Cyprus, and it's and it's proving itself in China. And that bodes well for for it as a almost like an asset allocation where you you might say, oh, we're going to buy gold because I'm concerned about the currency situation in, if I'm sitting in China. But then you've got liquidity issues with gold in terms of physical storage and and so on and so forth. Whereas a a digital currency allows you to move something uh, fairly rapidly and swiftly. So. These are all these um, aspects which I guess have made me fairly bullish on it. I do think at some point it either goes supernova or it, or it goes away, quite literally. Yeah, I don't. I just don't think it's going to go away because the number of people who are working on the number of projects. I mean, there was a fantastic interview on the Tim Ferriss podcast with Mark Andreessen, and he's like, "Well, the reason I really love Bitcoin is the fact that everybody has an argument why it might not work, but then when you look, step back, and look at who's working on it and what's happening." It's almost well beyond the tipping point. Yeah, and it's, so it's mis, it's mis, it's mispriced for its future probable success. Well, it's interesting because one of my um, good friends, Harris Kupperman, mentioned this fact to me. He said, "You know, can you think of any asset class which is?" And this is back when it was about, I think it was about four fifty something like that, where the market cap was roughly nine nine billion. And he's like, "Can you think of any asset class which has a market cap of that size?" And probably 40% of it is actually not tradable because it's owned by the founders. And then of that free float, 80% of it is traded in China. Show me another asset or another equity or bond that has the kind of media coverage. Pretty much everybody knows about it now. And yeah. so that's that beginning of that market acceptance. And then, um, you know. It's, did... like, it's, just, it's just like the internet. It's exactly the same. When we all first saw the internet, we thought, well, what use is this? It's never going to work. It's going to fall over, all of that. And, you know, bit by bit, it proved itself more than we ever imagined. I think it's probably true of Bitcoin. It's interesting because I did some studies about this some time back, and it actually all comes back into a distribution curve. So you've got what is, you know, um, commonly known as Pareto's law, right? The 80-20 principle. If you go back and you, you can actually see this in small cap stocks where a particular company gains 20% of the market, as soon as it's it's around, but it's between eighteen and twenty three percent. As soon as it has market penetration of that magnitude, that's when it pretty much goes supernova, and then it can reach, and then it'll reach eighty percent of the market. So if you think of say Google, it's pretty much eighty percent of the market. But the tipping point was back when it reached penetration of twenty percent, which is quite a fascinating metric to go back and have a look at a number of companies. And you could literally pull up companies and say how much market share do they have. And at what point of the cycle they're at. And it doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to become the 80% controller of that particular market, but it does give you a probability um, ratio. I mean, right now we could, for example, look at, say, Nintendo or, or Pokemon Go in this crazy world, which in the AR or VR space is, you know, rapidly approaching that that phase. Because I've had a couple of conversations with his friends talking about, oh, you know, take a look at the stock and you've got this thing trading at over 180 times earnings, do we short it? And I'm not prepared to you know, step in front of a runaway train right now. But I think that's where you know Bitcoin can be kind of interesting. And we're not yet at the 20%. Have 20% of the global banks, of the, you know, 20% of the, of the major global banks, are they working on Bitcoin projects? Yeah, for sure. You know, are 20% of the global tech giants working on Bitcoin stuff? Probably. How much of the flow of capital into um, VC startups went into Bitcoin? You know, is it 20% of 
what happened last year. You know, it's not a million miles away. No. So it depends which metric you use. Of global capital flows, that would be for it to be the global currency. But for it to gain global acceptance, it is on a number of different levels. I agree. So it's, there's a lot of potential in that. Anything else that you are concentrating on right now? No, I think, you know, I hate to do it because I'm a global macro guy, but geopolitics is becoming more and more of an issue. And, you know, the political shifts, you know, the, the Neil Howe fourth turning kind of thing that is going on around the world is becoming more and more obvious. I mean, I'm sure many people always think their times are more tumultuous than any time before them, except for, you know, the, the obvious periods of warfare. But it does really feel that there is a huge shift. I mean, I, was, I lived in Spain for 10 years. And Spain currently doesn't have a government. <laughs> yeah, they can't even elect a government right now. We've got the situation in the UK where you leave Europe without a plan because populism. Yeah. You've got the US electoral cycle, which is very populist driven. Um, you've got, I mean, look what's going on in Turkey, even as we speak. I mean, I'm just reading a headline now. Ergodan has just fired all university deans and suspended 21,000 private school teachers. I mean, it's astonishing what's going on, but that's a populist thing. You know, it's, we've seen that rule book before, and that's, you know, Chavez did it before, and that was populism. We've seen it in Argentina before, all populism. But populism has gone to the West. We never believed it. We thought it was for banana republics, and now mm -hmm. it's going everywhere. I think that's, again, it's something we don't know how to price, because we've just not seen this really until pre-World War II. We just haven't seen populism in major Western countries. So it's, it's complex, and we don't know what it means. So here's a little anecdote. I was doing some research on previous bubbles, for example, and really around the psychology. I spent a lot of time looking at psychology because I think a market is essentially just a collective of humans' emotions and psychology and how that's then translated into prices in a, in a, in a market. And one of the things, I was looking at tulip bubble, and what happened there was you had the plague, the great plague, the bubonic plague was ravaging Europe. And people tended to have a fatalistic view of society because you didn't know, quite frankly, if you were going to be alive next year. And coupled with that, you had one of the shortest growing seasons for a number of years because the um, temperatures dropped by roughly two degrees. So there were a lot of people who were quite hungry. And in those sorts of environments, what humans tend to do is they curtail that long-term investment, right? Because it's much more, if you need to worry about what food you're putting on your plate tomorrow, you're not worrying about what food you're going to put in your plate in a week's time or in a month's time or in a year's time. You need to deal with the immediate. What the author of this particular report that I was reading suggested was that in that sort of environment, it's actually conducive towards speculation because people people literally quite literally gamble in that environment. If you go into, um, I grew up in Africa, I've lived in Asia and traveled extensively to a lot of third world countries, and you'll see that gambling is quite prevalent in those societies. It's why the middle and lower middle class will buy lottery tickets and the wealthy people look at them and go, that's nuts, why would you bother doing that? The prob probabilities are terrible. And so I kind of feel like we've got a bit of an environment in the world today, which is that shorter term thinking. And at the same time, it may be conducive towards speculative bubbles. I don't know if that's the case, but certainly when you look at I mean, in the events that we've had, <laughs> we had Brexit the week, a week later, we had the terrorist attacks in Nice. A week later, 
we had Turkey. Yeah. I'm just curious to see whether that's going to translate into any any sort of speculative s- small asset classes that we're maybe not really aware of. I mean, it is history. there. When it, if you look at it, I mean, there's some clear signs of speculation that go on in startups. I mean, people pay anything for anything now, any old rubbish. Oh, yeah. It's cooling off somewhat. But people have just basically thrown them away as lottery tickets and said, I mean, the standard portfolio management approach within the VC industry right now is I'm going to buy 10 lottery tickets. I'll, I'll assume that eight of them go to zero. Uh, one of them does okay and one of them's a home run and that'll make me my money. I mean, that's a slightly bizarre strategy to success. It's an extremely run. bizarre strategy. But what I've found, because as you know, for the last sort of four years, I was deeply involved in that space, is that you know, firstly, the valuations just blew out. I mean, it got to the point where you had two kids in a garage who had a prototype and an idea, and they were like, yeah, this is $20 million pre-money. Let's go. And um, in order for you to get any sort of – I mean, when you're going, getting in very early stage, you're looking for a, a potential at least – if not a probability that you're going to make 20 times your money with the knowledge that it could quite easily go and blow away. So if you're starting off with a $20 million valuation and then you go and you look at listed equities that are in the $200 million range and you go, hmm, okay, can this get there? And if so, can it do so without dilution and so on and so forth? And the answer that you come up with is absolutely no. It's very, very difficult. And so, you know, I kind of found myself in this situation, much like I'd been in late 96 after I'd built a real estate firm where yields had gone from 12 to 3. And you're just looking around, you go, I can't, I can't do anything more. And if you can't do anything more, you just stop doing it. And that's, to a large extent, the early stage investment space, as I see it now, where I think there's going to be a lot of companies which, quite frankly, have gone out, they've raised money on valuations, which didn't really make a whole lot of sense. The strategy has always been growth, not revenue or income. And I think when I come for second rounds of financing, um, it's going to be a no-bid market. And so I think there'll be a shift from growth to revenue. So we'll see. I might be I might be horribly wrong on that. Speaking with VCs and um, angel groups and so on and so forth, there's been in the first quarter of this this year there's been a massive curtailment of investment. There's a report just out recently that in the Series A round financings that it's down eighty percent for the first quarter of 2016, which is I mean that's that's pretty much as close to a no bid market as you get. Yeah. So. Yeah. Exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah, I don't know how that's going to end, but it doesn't feel right to me. You know, I think there's some some troubles to come. And in the private equity space, you had spoken about this before. You want to give us a, some quick thoughts on that, if you've got any? Um, I worry that the private equity space, in particular the big private equity firms, are the liquidity providers of the system. So they were the people who were able to step in where the banks couldn't, and they provided liquidity and illiquid assets. So they have huge distressed businesses whether it's real estate or whether it's you know, distressed credit or private sector lending, all of that is operated by three or four, maybe six large firms around the world. They're all using, they're all the huge beneficiaries of the low cost of capital built around huge leverage. And I think there's systemic risk amongst many of those participants. I think it's a terrifying situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, when does that play out? I've no idea, but uh, it is not. It's not something that I think I'm comfortable with. And I think, you know, there is definitely a problem to come out of that area. Last question before I let you go, Raul. 
oil. I know that you've been fairly bearish on that as a sector. What are your thoughts on that right now? I think oil and the dollar are just inversely correlated. The oil trades exactly as the dollar does. So now in the last few days, the dollar's been rising, oil's been coming off. I mean, that's just how it goes. So it's not really a story of supply and demand, and it hasn't been this whole dollar move. Yes, there is some excess supply, and that's why oil moves so far, so fast on the downside uh, last year and the year before. Um, but really, it's down to the dollar. And you and I talked about the odds of the dollar going higher over time are pretty high, so in which case the odds of oil going down in price are pretty high too. And how do you think that flows through into the oil sector? Well, if I look at I mean, I love a, I love a good chart. Um, and the chart of the oil companies in Europe, SXEP, it's one of the largest head and shoulders tops of any chart pattern I've ever seen in history. Um, and that would suggest that in Europe, for sure, that many of these oil, um, oil companies are going to get into deep, deep trouble. Uh, I think that's right. You know, along with the financialization of the global economy, we had the commoditization of the global economy. And that was driven by the, by the commodity super cycle, which was essentially China. So as we're on the commodity supercycle bus, and this is an age-old thing, and this is how it always works, um, then you're going to see many of these companies being a much smaller percentage of the global economy. I mean, the FTSE in the UK should not be such a high percentage of all the gas companies. It's just a function of, of what had happened in the boom beforehand, and that boom needs to get unwound. So I, you know, I think there's a lot lower for them to come. I also note with increasing interest about the lawsuits that are started against Exxon in the US by the uh, in New York, where they're starting to produce evidence that Exxon knew about global warming, knew the impacts of global warming, and purposely covered it up. Um, there's you know the usual email trails, exactly as there was in the asbestos suit and the tobacco suit. Um, and I think there is a risk that increasingly bankrupt governments go towards the oil companies to gain a share of their revenue by finding them out of existence. Uh, I think that's that's very likely to happen. Which is actually ties very closely into popularism, which we just discussed. It, it, all, it all fits. So you've got this global narrative which has changed, which is an anti-establishment uprising. It's a popularism. It's a nationalism. The other thing behind the oil market, there are a number of yield instruments that were built on the back of them. In a yield-starved environment, it was just tons of MLPs and things like that that were set up on the back of anything that derived a revenue. Many of those now are you know, looking like terrible ideas as as they get repriced by the market or get unwound, it, it doesn't bode well for for capital um, flowing back into that sector. It's rather going the other way. So it'll be interesting times, nevertheless. Yeah, exactly. You know, there are there's always plenty of opportunities, but I think the opportunities are less obvious these days. And you know, you've got in the financialization of the global economy, you basically got paid. For to do nothing. And those days are gone. So, I mean, that's fine. It just means people need to do some work again, create businesses as opposed to buy into other people's businesses, you know, at crazy valuations. And, you know, just be more cautious in how you think about things and look at different places for opportunities if you are investing in markets. Very good, Raul. It's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Not at all. Great to speak to you, mate. Thanks very much for tuning in. To receive more great subscriber-only information, go to capitalistexploits.at.